This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a show all about screen culture from movies on the big screen to whatever you're streaming. My name is Eloise Ross and I'm in the hosting chair tonight for the show and it's my pleasure to be back here in the studio where I'm joined by Glenn Dunks. Hi Glenn. Hi Eloise, how are you? I'm pretty good, how are you going? I'm doing really good. Good to be back, although the last time I was on the show it was, I believe in the depths of 2021 lockdown, I was beaming in from my living room. It's a different feel, isn't it? I did that a bit too. Yeah, it's a bit better being in the studio, I must say. Yeah, nice and warm and we're all hanging out. So on tonight's show, we'll be reviewing Amanda Kramer's new film, Give Me Pity, screening this weekend at Metamorphoses Festival after a couple of really successful screenings at MIFF. And we'll be reviewing the most recent film in the now 40 years strong Halloween franchise, Halloween Ends, which rounds out the latest trilogy from director David Gordon Green. Before we jump into the first segment, I want to let our listeners know about a very special event happening in Melbourne later this week. On Wednesday, October 19, ACME is celebrating the life of actor, artist and activist Uncle Jack Charles. The free event includes a chance to hear and share in some memories of Uncle Jack and to see a couple of his TV appearances, including some highlights of the sketch series Black Comedy and the premiere episode of Preppers from 2021. Visit acme.net.au for more details. And now on to our first segment, uh, we are joined by Connor Bateman of Static Vision. Uh, Static Vision started off as a small programming collective in 2018, shifted to curation in the online space during the pandemic, and have now extended themselves as a company working in an exciting frontier of distribution in Australia. After bringing five films, I believe, to the country to screen as part of MIFF, it's now time for their second annual festival in Melbourne after its Sydney incarnation took place last month. Metamorphoses, a static vision festival, a combination of new and retrospective screenings, kicks off at Leo Cinemas in Hawthorne this Thursday and runs until October 23. Joining us, as I said, is Connor Bateman, co-founder of Static Vision. Hey, Connor. Hey, Eloise. How are you going? I'm good. It's great to have you here. Can you tell us a little bit about Static Vision uh, and what you bring to the Australian film landscape? It's a big question. Um, yeah, Static Vision started, as you said, in 2018. My friend Felix Hubble and I uh, were living together. We'd worked in film criticism for a while. He'd worked in film programming. And we just decided to start staging regular film screenings in Sydney. So bring festival films that played at MIFF but not Sydney. That was kind of the focus when we started. And alternating those festival titles and very silly genre films that we would screen every Friday night. Um, and then as that continued, we decided to get into the festival space. In Sydney in 2020, we put on a festival about the internet called Hyperlinks. With a lot of Australian premieres, some retro titles. Uh, Olivia Assayas' Demon Lover was the opening <laughs> night of that one. So set the tone pretty well. Uh, and since then, both of us moved to Melbourne, me a fortnight before the lockdown in March 2020, uh, and we pivoted to online live streams. So for 32 weeks straight during 2020, we did six-hour Friday live streams of films, interviews with filmmakers like Guy Madden, Cecilia Condit, Paul Schrader. It was uh, very madcap and exhausting, but a lot of fun. 
Uh, and so, yeah, at the end of 2021, we were able to finally do our first in-person Melbourne festival, which was called Dreamscapes, all about dreams. And this year, we hopefully, without any delay, <laughs> are doing our second, which is Metamorphoses. Great. Yeah, one of the names you mentioned there was Guy Madden, and I was lucky enough to actually get to see the new 4K restoration of Tales from the Gimli Hospital Redux, uh, which you are planning on screening. It's a very, even in the world of Guy Madden, probably obscure, um, but it's very representative of, of a lot of the films that Static Vision are screening and have screened at festivals such as MIF. What goes into the thought process of choosing the movies that you do? I think when it comes to both festival and distribution films that we look at, it's, it's got to have a fairly unique vibe. We're looking for something that is different, innovative, new. Uh, some of the films that we've played at MIF and will be playing at the festival, Give Me Pity, which we'll be talking about later today, uh, and Sick of Myself, Christopher Borgley's extremely black comedy from Cannes this year. And so it's got to have something different. It's got to be able to reach across to audiences that might not always go to film festivals or might not think of film festivals as a space for them. And so even with something like The Guy Madden, uh, which is a very strange sort of homage to silent Swedish cinema in the 1920s, there's something about the madcap energy of it that I think really appeals to people. And in that session, we're screening it with a brilliant short film by Peter Tchaikovsky called Train Again, which is an intense collapsing of cinema history in a very... Yeah, it uses the train as a metaphor and as a visual focus. But yeah, so those two films together, I think, are a way to show people that sort of the cinematic avant-garde is actually a lot of fun. I watched that film on Mubi a few months ago. I can't imagine what it would be like in a cinema. I'm very excited. I'm yet to see it in a cinema. I also watched it on Mubi. Uh, but the opportunity presented itself to finally screen Peter's film in Australia and, you know, in a cinema, can't pass that up. Yeah. So I know we've just um, talked about how great cinemas are, which is fantastic. But you mentioned the online space and all of the online screenings you did. And that was when I, at least living in Melbourne, first became aware of what you guys were doing in the distribution space. The sense of community that you generated during those online screenings was really quite astounding, particularly for all of us living in this, you know, isolated space in Melbourne. Do you see that coming to your IRL spaces now? Hopefully. I mean, we do. I think that that experience online was such a, as you say, like a very interesting, surprising community for us. We were sort of at the start thinking we were streaming into the void. Um, but, you know, even 10 weeks in, there's such a robust chat group like so many people were tuning in week upon week and it's now been great to have them come to events. I mean, I think this weekend for our first non-COVID delayed festival is actually a time where we will probably see a lot of the people that we were chatting with online during those streams in 2020 and 2021. So that's an exciting prospect, but we definitely, I guess that online experience taught us a bit about audiences that would be interested in the films we were screening, the kind of things they were looking at. Uh, the way that they reacted to certain short films, because we sort of Trojan horsed a lot of experimental short films <laughs> in on those streams. Um, and it was, you know, as much a, a project for us over that time, but it was also a way to test out ideas, to set get a much stronger sense of tone mm -hmm. about the films that we were looking at and focusing on. And hopefully a lot of the people that tuned in uh, to those streams in 2020 will get the opportunity to see some of these films on the big screen this weekend. Yeah, you mentioned all, obviously all of the streaming, uh, all the effort that you put into streaming during the uh, lockdowns, during the pandemic. One film I saw of yours at MIF uh, was the uh, the Charlie 
Charlie Lyon <laughs> film, Charlie Shackleton film, sorry, The Afterlight. Yeah, that's right. Which is only exhibited in cinemas on a single film print. So what are you taking from your time doing digital curation and, and hoping to bring now to theatrical exhibition? Are, are the films that are playing at the festival, does, have you just deliberately curated them to be theatrical films? Or are these films that you think would also play uh, on, on the digital space as well? I think, I mean, in, in the case of Charlie's film, which, yes, it's a single film print, and that was a very unique distribution deal that it we did. Great yeah, it was wonderful, it was wasn't it? Quite a big crowd there, yeah. Yeah, I think when we're programming for festivals, we are thinking about the big screen. I think a lot of the films could stream fine, as we found in 2020. Um, we did our, a festival hyperlinks in Sydney. We moved to Melbourne, planning on doing it in Melbourne. COVID hit, so we just did it online. and mm-hmm. So we got to see 80% of our... IRL program, stream online for free for a weekend with filmmaker Q&As. And that sort of taught us a bit about the line between what films play really well in an online space versus what films play really well in a theatrical space. But for the films playing this weekend, I think a lot of them are theatrical events. I think, as we mentioned, the Peter Tchaikovsky short is one of them. We've got Gaspar Noe's Lux Eterna, <laughs> which is just extraordinary in a cinema space. Um, what did you learn? Uh, what, what was one of the key lessons about online versus... Uh, IRL spaces, given that uh, hyperlinks experience? I think it was just the ease with which you can allow people to discover things. You know, online we did a... When we did hyperlinks in Sydney in in person, we screened a film by the artist Lawrence Leck called A Idol. And for the online version, we screened all three of his films, live Q&A for hours, and it was this extraordinary way to suddenly allow people to see an entire artist's breadth of work. You, you have a lot more freedom online to do that, to suggest, mm. you know, here's a tangent to go down, here's another film, here's a link in the chat, here's a way to explore that. And so I think when it comes to actual festivals and IRL festivals, physical ones, it's you don't have that opportunity necessarily. So it becomes very important for us when we pair short films and features, how we structure a, a program for a physical event to make sure that there is an element of discovery in it and surprise. Mm. Uh, I think the way we approach short films is really that. Um, but also it's it's ensuring that people feel like we, we would love them to come and see one of these sessions. Maybe they don't know anything about it or stay for a few and then suddenly go, wow, I have four filmmakers I need to go and check out now. <laughs> that could be one of the most exciting things about, I don't know, film going, cinephilia, whatever you want to call it, is that sense of discovery. So I think that's really amazing that this is what you're bringing. Um, I also noticed that this was last year as well and you're for hyperlinks, everything. Uh, it's quite a condensed festival, running two nights only, Thursday and Friday, and then two days. So is is that right? Well, it's, it's evenings on Saturday, Sunday as well. Uh, yeah. It's a, yeah. It's a, yeah, we used to do three-day festivals, Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, and then last year decided to expand it. Mm-hmm. It's it's a lot. It's, yeah. It's 17 yeah. feature films in... And everything uh, yeah. only screening once. So That's why, right. what was behind that decision? We didn't want clashes. Mm-hmm. We, we, I know at MIF and bigger festivals there's an anxiety about wanting to make sure you see everything and trying to fit it in. For us, we didn't want any of that. We thought, you know, let's make it an event. We're selling it as a film experience. It's, you know, it's not a grand, great festival, that, you know, but it is a tightly curated experience and we don't want people to have to worry about rushing between cinemas. And so for us it is. It's, you know, two films on the, on the Thursday night, mm-hmm. three on the Friday, and then 
I think it's seven and five on the next days. So I haven't done the maths there quickly. Yeah, and a double of Cat People and then it's remake Cat People. <laughs> what is the, I mean, what kind of comes from screening an original and a remake together? I think that's a, a very unique pairing because the Schrader version from 1982 is so drastically different from the Jacques Tourneur version mm. from 1942. They're both drawing on the same, well, Schrader's draws on the treatment for the 1942 film, but he radically changes it mm-hmm. it's uh he includes a backstory that is quite um salacious let's say uh it is very different tonally it's very in your face it's very sexual it's very provocative in a very 1980s excess <laughs> kind of way um but it was a lot of fun screening those two back to back in sydney and just you know i don't think people were quite prepared for how paul schrader's film would react with the 1942 one I must say, I have a tattoo um, inspired by Cat People, uh, which he's looking at. I'm looking right at now. it right now, yeah. <laughs> so I am a very big fan of the original 1940s version. I'm less keen on the Schrader, but I, I do feel like it's the sort of film that seeing it on a big screen would, would benefit greatly. Absolutely. I think that film is a spectacle, but so is the Tono original. I mean, the way that, that is lit, the, you know, the mood that is conveyed in that film is extraordinary. Schrader's Cat People, by the way, being the movie where David Bowie's, uh, what, what's the song called? Fight Fire with Gasoline. I can never remember the name of it, but it's a great song. But that's where it comes from. Yeah. Nice. So, Connor, can you tell us? some of your highlights or recommendations of the festival that people might not, I mean, you know, we see Give Me Pity, we see all these names and bright colours. What are some of the others that might not stand out? Sure. I mean, my favourite film in the festival is probably the the smallest film or one of the smallest. It's called Our Quiet Place. It screens on Saturday afternoon. It's a documentary by the Bulgarian director Elitza Gorgeva and it is about a Belarusian writer whose father disappeared in the 90s Uh, and she wants to write a novel about her father's disappearance but struggles to do that in her native tongue and so moves to Paris and learns French to try and write the novel and sort of exercise this trauma. And the film plays as a dialogue between the filmmaker and the author. You have on-screen text that is, you know, replacing any VO or discussion. Uh, It's just a very small, beautiful film about translation, memory... It's about literature and how we read and what it means for certain phrases and words to signify a huge amount of things. So I love that film a lot. Uh, There's another film on the Saturday called Magnetic Fields, which is Greece's entry to the Oscars this year. Uh, it, It is a delightful road movie that was mostly improvised. It's shot on DV cam. It was made during COVID with a very small cast. Um, and it is a very funny, warm, sort of stranger friendship sort of thing. It's two people who would never have reason to meet, uh, who uh, find themselves together on a on a Greek island as one car breaks down and the other offers them a lift. And then suddenly they're on a trip with a MacGuffin that is a interesting metal case. Um, but yeah, that is that was a real highlight for me this That's year. That's so good that you're going to be screening that Greece's entry to the Oscars. So is it screening elsewhere? No. No. Wow. Well, that's one of the things that I've really liked looking at your program is, well, you've got movies like Give Me Pity, which played at MIFF. You've got so many movies that just would not otherwise get a theatrical screening in Australia let alone, at all, let alone Melbourne. And with Melbourne being such a 
movie loving uh culture uh it's, it's always so surprising to hear of the movies that people maybe overseas are talking about that we never get the opportunity to see so i think it's really great yeah that's a real sort of thrill of the process for us is trying to find these films that we think deserve a even if it's one cinema screening and trying to make sure we can have that happen and so yeah i was really excited for some of these smaller films to play we've got a, a documentary called eventually from norway that is uh cringe-inducing in a good way. It's about a couple who've been on off for four years uh, who, with the help of a filmmaker, direct scenes from their relationship to figure out whether they should actually stay together. And it's fine, and then the last 20 minutes becomes excruciating in a, in a really interesting way. Wow, I don't know if I want to see that, but maybe I do. I'm really excited to hear as well about some of the stuff you've got coming up. I don't know whether you can disclose, but uh, just to mention, you did announce that you were going to be screening The People's Joker and then uh, could no longer do so. Is that going to be coming up at all? Not in this festival. Um, yeah, The People's Joker, Vera Drew's film, screened at TIFF this year. It has footage and content from another major property uh, in the film world, but it is great. And we were very looking forward to, to having the Australian premiere here. But uh, Vera and her team have made the decision to pull the film for a while. I think they're looking at some legal trickery, um, <laughs> but, but we've communicated to them that as soon as they're ready for a release, we're here to help. And we are really keen to screen it here. Yeah, well, long live Static Vision, and I hope that you get a whole lot more um, to show us Melbournians, us Australians, beyond the festival, and I hope the festival goes well. Thanks for chatting with us, Connor. Thanks so much. Thank you. Screening at Metamorphoses this weekend is Give Me Pity, Amanda Kramer's latest feature, an energetic parody of 70s musical variety television. The film in its entirety, a TV special recorded in front of a live audience, stars Sophie von Hasselberg as Sissy St. Clair in an 80-minute flat-out performance of disco beats, musical numbers and sincere solos and monologues. It's both spectacular and spectacularly awkward. Intentionally so, Static Vision's blurb describes it as like an endurance test or ritual of humiliation. And its songs can be read as commentaries on performance, the United States and the feminine psyche. And Perfect for October, it's also in some ways a horror film. Fresh from Miff, Give Me Pity is screening this weekend at Lido Cinemas. Oh, my stars, thank you. Well, what do you know? Television, TV, major network. I've been waiting for so long. You know, they thought I was crazy. A television special. But I think they're crazy. Give me pity. But I swear, for you, this special won't end until I'm flat out bashed in croaking and backstroking, depleted and mistreated, begging each and every one of you to set me free. You just heard a little montage from the trailer, Forgive Me Pity, a film that we're going to be chatting about. Glenn, can you tell us why you loved it? Yeah, I, I really loved this movie. I kind of flipped for it when I saw it at uh, the Melbourne International Film Festival. It truly is... Just, it, it's an experience. Uh, it is a, as you've described, it's a musical, it's a horror movie, it's a tour de force from its lead star. Um, people listening at home may have uh, 
heard that voice before, maybe not directly, but it is because the lead star is actually Bette Midler's daughter. You know, I was watching it and I was like, she's a, this amazing performer across between Barbara Streisand and Bette Midler. And then I looked her up and I was like, oh my gosh, of course. Yeah, anyway. I think it's a really smart bit of casting, not just because she looks exactly like her mother, um, and not just because she's a good singer and a good dancer, which the role calls for, mm. but also because it really does uh, evoke those 70s variety shows where the likes of Liza Minnelli would mm. come out for 60 minutes and just entertain the crowds. And Liza Minnelli, obviously, being a daughter of a very famous Hollywood legend herself, it just it, it's, it's a really great bit of meta casting there that works not just because it's meta, but because uh, the lead is, she is just, she's just really talented in this role. She's so good. And she carries every, uh, you know, I mean, it's a variety show, but she does everything so well. The singing, as you say, the dancing, holding the eyes of the camera, which in TV and especially live TV would be so important. I mean, I guess we should say this is mock live TV. This is yeah. not real. And there's... I don't, I don't think... Uh, yeah, well, the well, the film adopts the look of, um, of you know fuzzy video form, yeah. television from that era. It's not. Uh, it's played very much not as reality. Um, I, I think it's best to maybe look at it as sort of the last, you know, fevered psychosis of a wannabe celebrity. Maybe like in her dying moments, just imagining the the fame that she never <laughs> quite got. I think it's a really interesting uh, experiment from the director Amanda Kramer, who I she has made four films since 2018. Uh, she's made oh she's releasing two films this year, uh, both of which played at MIF. I was not a fan of an earlier film of hers that I saw called Lady World. Well, I was going to ask you because I know you love this so much and I haven't seen anything by Amanda Kramer, but... That yeah, Lady World was from 2018, sort of a Lord of the Flies set mm. in a mansion with a bunch of young women uh, who are trapped in this house after, I want to say, an earthquake traps mm -hmm. them inside. It, if anybody saw Bodies, Bodies, Bodies recently, <laughs> that was <laughs> there was actually quite a few parallels there. That one, I feel, was very much a first film made on the you know smell of an oily rag type of thing it was quite rough i felt and i i just i wasn't able to get into that but this one it looks incredible it is just bathed in these neon pink lights and because there's so many mirrors so many uh sequins and mirror balls the entire film has this strobe uh lens flare look to it that really does a great job at evoking that period setting that it's trying to do whilst also elevating the fantasy and the uh, hysteria that, that we're meant to get out of it. Uh, I know you, you weren't quite <laughs> as big on it though, but so yeah, tell me why. Well, I w was watching it and I watched it at home and you watched it in a cinema and I think we had different experiences for different reasons as well. But I, I, maybe this is kind of the point, but the opening scene where she's singing... Impeccable. <laughs> and there's disco. She was great and the lyrics were great and the style really took me. I was disappointed by the disco beats, I have to say, in that initial. Right. And I was really? like, this is a bit, they, they're a bit down. And it didn't, so it didn't quite grab me as immediately. It, and the, the songs are very sort of, 
You know on Spotify when you search for a song <laughs> and it comes up with like slightly dodgy, yeah. not quite real versions of famous songs? And they are great. And there's one in particular, uh, um, George M. Cohen kind of remix, shall we say, that mocks the United States of America. They were, I'm just going to say their names because they were fantastic songs, I thought, written by Julio Carmassi and Brian Scary. Yeah. But the disco bit in this, it was just seemed a bit off or dull or something. And then I thought, perhaps that's the point. Yeah, I think being a little bit off is yeah, the entire And film. not quite as exciting. So you get the sense that she is, as a performer, amping herself up and that she maybe even prior to us watching this has needed to um, perform, I guess, outside of the scenario that's offered to her. Mm. And that's why she's so exhausted and why she's like almost at this level where she's going to explode. So perhaps it makes sense thematically. Um, it just took me a little while to come around to that, that mm. point, I suppose. Um, yeah. I mean, I get that. I did see it theatrically. And so people who are going to go see it at the Lido at the Metamorphoses Festival are in for a treat. One, it, it's kind of interesting though because I did, whilst seeing it on the big screen was incredible, being enveloped by this sound design and having, like I said, just these incredible colours just sort of wash over you. It's, the film has this really quite almost demonic quality to it um, and it's the sort of thing that I did kind of wish, I, it's, I, I wish I could so had sort of come upon it at maybe 3 a.m. Uh, in between maybe like songs on rage when you're, you know, you're just lying on the couch, maybe you're a bit stoned, maybe a bit drunk. And it's just, what is this thing that I am watching right now? It is as if it is going to come out of the television <laughs> and haunt me for, for real. I, it's got such a beguiling quality to it. I mean, is that what Amanda Kramer is trying to get across with this, that television can have this impact and trying to force, I don't know, force performers into a particular kind of state or state of performance does have this effect, a degrading effect on not degrading, what am I trying to say? Like, yeah. No, I think degrading effect is a, On the is a... people and also the audience. Yeah, I mean, I certainly think, and again, going back to the casting, you know, you, you cast what is essentially Hollywood royalty in a film about an entertainer who the industry seems to be picking apart and destroying. There is a, there's a deeply amusing scene that for anyone who's seen the um, Blonde on Netflix, <laughs> oh, no, there's not, actually yeah. a very similar scene in Blonde where for some reason Marilyn Monroe's handlers or whatever you might call them read out letters from fans but it turns out they're actually they they just they're horrible and they call her terrible names it's like well why would you read that to her <laughs> there's a really funny scene however in give me pity where she reads from a mailbag and the letters get progressively more sinister and darker and more gruesome in their content and when you look at things like that i definitely see it as a as a film about the way that this industry, both then and still to this day, presumably, uh, really do does its best to tear at as particularly female entertainers, for whom you know this this sort of entertainment, the variety show, was very uh, female fronted. A lot of if you search on YouTube, you will find lots of Barbara Streisand and Bette Midler and Goldie Hawn and Liza Minnelli and 
and so on and so on. And yeah, I think it. I think your observation there is quite uh, spot on. Obviously, you know, all, all things being subjective, um, it's it is a film that will not be for everybody. Uh, it's it's just it's go it's got some wild swings to it. <laughs> I mean, there's an. I feel like there is enough that even if it doesn't grab you and it is awkward and it will intentionally try and push you away, but the glamour of it all and the delivery format of the television special is that it's for you as an audience and Sissy St. Clair will speak Mm. directly to you and grab you. And so it might be cyclical that you fall out Mm. and then you... So I'm not going to discourage anyone from going to see it. I feel like it would be awesome. That scene... I don't know, the letter reading scene, I wanted more awkwardness. <laughs> I wanted it to be worse. More? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, there's I don't know. There's maybe a bit of that sadism inside you there. Probably, right? yeah, yeah. Which <laughs> maybe then speaks to, you know, you know, we we look at things recently like, gosh, the Don't Worry Darling press tour where it's like mm. it's a car crash that we can't can't look away from because we don't get that sort of stuff too often and it's and sometimes you know it it is it isn't pleasant when this sort of stuff unfolds and when we're watching it here and give me pity it's it is this like we're watching this woman self-destruct have a meltdown and yet entertained by it yeah which again it just it's (laughs) it's it's saying it's it can be saying a lot of things on based on your own interpretation of that well i also just loved all of the fake eyelashes and those that fake mascara stain from the her fake tears was awesome i loved all of the makeup and production design so the the makeup the hair design i don't know if that's her real hair but if it it's not. It is an incredible <laughs> wig. Uh, yeah, I, the design of this film impeccable. The yeah, costumes amazing. So, what about this this spooky man or this thing that makes it horror? I mean, so occasionally the um, Sissy St. Clair looks off. Um, she looks away from the camera and she looks behind uh, to the crew and there's this, I'm going to say it because we're talking about Halloween next, Michael Myers-esque figure kind of <laughs> lurking in the shadows or Imagine even closer. actual Michael Myers. <laughs> um, it's real. It could happen. He's the boogeyman. Anyway, um, and she well, gets... The, she... <laughs> the, the demon man in this one is probably... No, no less unrealistic than Michael Myers, as we may get to in a bit. But well, he—I mean—at the end, everyone's saying goodbye, and he's just—he's just a random guy on the crew, like he's nobody. But her, um, you know, she's kind of imagined him as this man who's causing her to have a breakdown. And if you think about it like this, it's—you know—in terms of kind of the actresses that it gestures towards and the stardom and the way that we as consumers of media interact with stars is really sad and depressing and upsetting that someone could possibly imagine that they're being stalked by this creepy figure who is in fact just nobody. And there's this whole kind of like oeuvre of films about women having women on the verge of a nervous breakdown essentially. Yeah. And I, yeah, it, I, I, I'm, I have no idea. <laughs> I will just admit I had no idea what was going on in those bits, but I think that just added to the texture for me. This weirdo freak out 
experience, which, um, <laughs> which you know, going back to the Would conversation... Would make the 3am kind of tuning right? in even more wild. Yeah, like going back to, that, to the conversation we had with Connor, you know, about the films that Static Vision are acquiring and, and showing at their festival. They're one-of-a-kind oddities that you... I, couldn't necessarily explain this one succinctly. You know, we could talk about it for a very long time and not even and not cover yeah. a lot of the weird stuff that that Amanda Kramer decides to throw in there. I, I yeah, I, I just loved. I, I, it just it washed over me. I was enveloped through the entire thing. I was freaking out alongside mm-hmm. her, whilst also so engaged with the musical performances, this sort of solid gold dancers uh, meets variety show <laughs> aesthetic. I, yeah, I, I was, uh, I walked out of that, that uh, Friday night, that late Friday night session, just really elated that, that there was a film that was doing something like that. I'd yeah. never seen before. I mean, it looks great. It's a lot of fun. Um, even the moments that aren't fun, you know, the rest of it can kind of take over. And I think that Amanda Kramer is doing something really interesting with some possibly really serious kind of themes and Mm. focuses, but in a very interesting way that I haven't seen before. Yeah, she does have another film coming out very soon internationally called Please Baby Please. Um, So I'll be interested to see uh, whether my... whether. Uh, I stay in Kramer's lane or whether I revert back. Yeah. Very, very psyched for that one. Yeah, same. Well, give me pity screens at Metamorphoses, a static vision festival this Saturday, October 22. Head to metamorphoses.fest.melbourne for details. So, yes, obviously it's October and for certain fans of a particular type of cinema, like Glenn and myself, it's currently the best time of year, horror month. I've been watching a lot of retrospective horror on Blu-ray and streaming, some favourites and some of the, shall we say, trashier kind. I also paid my respects to the most grand dame, Angela Lansbury, last week with a viewing of The Picture of Dorian Gray, her second role and her second Oscar nomination. It was a treat. But I've occasionally visited some newer stuff, most recently in the actual cinema with Halloween Ends, this latest film in the most recent franchise trilogy directed by David Gordon Green follows Laurie Strode and her granddaughter Alison living peacefully in Haddonfield, Illinois. As Laurie is finishing her memoirs, it's been 40-something years since her first and four years since her last encounter with her boogeyman, Michael Myers. But will he emerge from his shadows for one final fight? Because this is a movie, the answer will, of course, be yes, but how and why will such an event occur and who else will join the Slasher Fest as we round out the trilogy? And apparently, although I'm not so sure, mark the final appearance of Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode. Allison is not equipped for this relationship, and I will not let her get hurt. So stay away. You started this! You brought me in! You invited me! Are you the one to blame? If I can't have her, no one will. You want to help Allison let her live her life? She has me now. So that was a little bit of Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween Ends. And I have to say that no matter what I thought of this movie, at least we had Jamie Lee Curtis. Are we right, Glenn? She's always watchable. (laughs) 
What did you think? Well, look, uh, at about maybe the about halfway through this movie, I turned to my uh, to my friend who I was watching the movie with, and I actually asked, "What the hell <laughs> is going on?" Because I think I did the same when I was watching it. This movie is truly baffling. I the 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 David Gordon Green trilogy has been a bit of a wild ride. I really enjoyed um, the 2018 reboot, mm-hmm. uh, just titled Halloween. I thought it worked as a really solid slasher movie. Even though some of the characterizations, particularly of Jamie Lee Curtis's Laurie Strode, were a bit inconsistent with the timeline that they were working with. They had removed every single Halloween sequel, like literally every single sequel. They got rid of it. Didn't They weren't working to that timeline at all. Uh, so while some of that characterization didn't make sense, I enjoyed the film. Halloween Kills has sort of built a reputation as, as one the of worst. the worst. I must admit, I... I found it so bad that I was laughing all the way through. So in some weird way, I actually maybe enjoyed At it. At least you were laughing. I just remember being bored out of my skull because it's just essentially Jamie Lee Curtis is stuck yeah. in a hospital bed the entire film and it's really dark. And then Evil there's, dies tonight. Yeah, there's some mob stuff and some monologues. and I, I found it extremely high camp when to have two gay men uh, remodel the Michael Myers house. Oh, that was fun. That was a good scene, that one. <laughs> that was ridiculous. The new one, however, I was... I had no idea... Like like I, what I said, I had no idea what was going on. It It is a Halloween film in name only? Yeah, I found it really interesting as well. I was expecting to think it was atrocious and boring and hoping that it wasn't quite mm. as bad as Halloween Kills. And it starts off... That opening scene is actually... It's the best scene in the movie. It's I really thought. good. And it's, so it starts off and it's sort of... I mean, it plays with the Halloween franchise and also the slasher film, you know, kind of like mode because it starts off with a male babysitter mm. babysitting this kid. And it's this really tense scene and it uses the house quite well, really efficiently. It's not, I found, while I was watching it, I found myself already bringing judgment and thinking this is too drawn out. Bring back the really efficient, economical opening scenes, you know, that kind of get through their Mm. thing really quickly. But it does something very interesting. Mm. And then the first half of the film, it's not really engaging with Halloween, the narrative, not even the mythology, not Michael Myers. And it's very, I was very kind of perplexed, I suppose. Yeah, if it wasn't called Halloween, mm. I may have liked it more, <laughs> perhaps. I, I must say, I I admire any any filmmakers, any creatives who will take a property that is so, you know, mythologised, so lauded. Um, you well, might least, admire them? You don't least, think it's like... At least the first film. Um <laughs> I, no, I will. I, I admire any filmmaker who can really take a franchise like that and just and do something actually different, actually fresh, actually unique, its own thing. 
which is what this film does. Mm. But it, the way it goes about it, I don't think it works. It feels like at every single scene, the worst creative decision <laughs> was made. It was not well directed. No. I have to say that at all. It was very... I mean, the last film was very flat and I felt like this was more fun and funny than scary. And, you know, what you want out of a Halloween film is to feel the tension. And what has happened, and it's not necessarily the fault of this trilogy because it was happening, you know, a while ago, is that Michael Myers is not scary anymore. I mean, when he was kind of still this boogeyman, that was great, and now he's this insane. Yeah, when he kind wasn't of... seventy year years old. <laughs> well, actually, now he's played by I forget the James Jude Courtney, I think, who was in Buffy as the oh, wow. kid to Scott, I, the stuntman. Anyway, I thought he looked exactly like John Carpenter, actually, <laughs> which I thought was actually a hey, funny bit of cool. casting. Um, but it, it's just you know he's not a scary figure anymore, and I just find it ludicrous and unbelievable, and I cannot give myself over to these stories, and so I'm at this point. And this film was actually quite good for it because it was very silly and very WTF. It was like, you, you know, it's it's fun. It's not really necessarily about being scared. I wasn't scared at all. There was none of it. A horror, a scary movie that's not about being scary. That's Yeah, I mean, maybe they leaned into it or I leaned yeah. into it or something. I just, I, I was really, I was really perplexed again by the characterizations. Mm. I don't know why... Laurie Strode was suddenly acting like she'd had a lobotomy. She was very odd in her final scene. I found she switched, she switched modes about five times in that final. It was a very manic performance. Yeah, and then every other character in the movie, just about, Mm. is awful. They are (laughs) horrible people, and not in the in the way that oh, they're they're not meant to be nice characters and you want to see them get killed. Like, they were actually unpleasant Just to Just in the watch. function of plot. Yeah. yeah. Like, really, like, every single person in this town of Haddonfield is just a diabolical person, I which actually... maybe is part of the text that, you know, Michael Myers has turned this town into, against each in, other. Against you know. themselves. He's and, the poison. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I will say one thing I really, I really liked that it wasn't in the movie, but if you think about it, 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 it's quite amusing that uh, Michael Myers did follow COVID protocols and <laughs> kept to himself. You know, he's, some of he's his... not been seen since the last movie. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Go Good Michael. on Michael. So a couple. I mean, every time this film, I was um, about to, you know, laud it for doing its own thing. The directorial choices, as you say, kind of were flawed, and I feel like that's because at almost every point the director was remembering, oh, yeah, I'm making a Halloween mm. film and tried to and tried to call back to none of the others but the first film, which it was so bizarre and strange to be doing that. And I also – and it was very off-putting and I don't think the director was quite worthy of it. But I also think that there were a couple of scenes that reminded me of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Oh, wow. And maybe they were including where Michael Myers was living and the way we got into it and then the radio station. I don't know. I only watched this at the start of October, um, so it's fresh in my memory. But I thought, is this director trying to kind of bring prestige to this film. Well, that was the thing that I think this new trilogy was meant to do. It was Mm. meant to be, you know, the grittier, it was meant to be 
based more in reality. It was about everyone has seen the meme of Jamie Lee Curtis <laughs> saying trauma over and over again. It was meant to explore real human emotions. And then in this newest film, which is you know meant to be the culmination, they revert back almost to the the in Halloween Six, The Curse mm. of Michael Myers, which is one of it's roundly considered to be one of, if not the worst, in the entire 13-film franchise. That one involved a cult, like a druid cult. And this one almost goes to a direction in, in a direction that is just as bizarre, which for a, a franchise that was meant to be, you know, more grounded <laughs> in character and grounded in, you know, generational trauma, seemed like a just a truly bizarre... I think it should have just... I mean, it was also sort of harkening back to Halloween 3 season of The Witch in some ways, and Mm. I feel like it should have just done that all out because that wasn't about Michael Myers at all, and I really loved that. That was so much fun. I will say justice for Judy Greer. She was the best part in both the first two (laughs) movies until they unceremoniously killed her off in the last one for some reason. And, you know, as I was approaching this, I was thinking, well, at least we get Judy Greer. And then I looked up the cast and she wasn't in it, and I thought... to remember. Yeah, Oops. and you know why I forgot that she died was because it was right at the end where of of Halloween Kills where I was so bored and it was so flat already that yeah. it just didn't even leave an impact on me. Yeah. Yeah, not I, I yeah, can't say I'm a fan of this one. It, I know there are some people online who are already trying to reclaim it as as a great <laughs> movie. Good for them. Not a fan. I I was quite fond of, shall we say, which is probably not a term that a horror film wants, a horror filmmaker wants me to use about their film, about the way that it dealt with the Michael Myers and the young guy in it. What was his name? Corey. I liked that actor. Can you remember? He was really was? good. I don't remember his name. He I don't remember really his good... name either. And he I was realized... probably the highlight for me. Yeah, he was really good and really, really interesting. And he reminded me I just of... wish they hadn't taken his character to, like, the worst place to have taken that character. They did. I mean, I quite liked the very beginnings of it mm. when they started to develop his particular kind of character arc. And then it was like it jumped the shark. Yeah, and again, <laughs> it, is very rare. it is very rare for a film, uh, for a franchise that, you know, is this... Technically, in this timeline, four films deep, to introduce such a, a new main character who will have more, who ends up having more of a impact on the narrative and on Laurie Strode than Michael Myers himself, which I think is ultimately the biggest frustration with the movie. It's just it just doesn't feel like a fitting end to Jamie Lee Curtis's tenure uh, in well, this role, and is... she has apparently signed a declaration <gasps> on live television has that she? she will not be in any more of these well, movies. Well, good, because, so. you know, I don't think she's particularly good in them, and I think that she deserves better. Mm. But, you know, there's that whole thing as well about how Michael Myers doesn't exist and you're, you're Michael Myers. Yeah, her, her, gra- so, yeah, her granddaughter yeah, says to her, you're, you're Michael Myers. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's why, you know, she is a harm to herself. <laughs> maybe. I will say my, uh, my favourite new horror movie of this month is not uh, Halloween Ends, shockingly. It's not even in cinemas. But um, there are two movies on Shudder, the, mm. the horror streaming app, I just wanted to quickly mention because I think they're really interesting. You've got the new uh, Dario Argento film called Dark Glasses, which is flawed, but it's uh, it's a really interesting uh 
take on on contemporary giallo. Uh, and for film lovers out there, they, you might be interested to know that Dario Argento is making a new movie <gasps> with. Isabelle Huppert. Very excited. The Who knows what that's going to be like. Um, the other movie I, that I would definitely recommend uh, is called Deadstream. It too is on Shudder. It's a film about a YouTuber um, who does dare, public dares for views on Twitch and YouTube and the like. And in this one, he enters a haunted house. And while that may sound uh, cliche, trite, it's extremely scary. I legit <laughs> screamed from my couch. Great. You don't get an opportunity to do that. Not very that often, much. no. Well, um, maybe check those out if you have Shudder. Halloween Ends, the film that we just reviewed, um, is screening in cinemas now. So you can catch that if you want to get the final film in the latest Halloween trilogy. Or you can do what I did last week and just go and watch the original Halloween on Stan. There are quite a few in the series that it's are still on Stan a right now. It's still a masterpiece. It's so good. Thanks so much for tuning in tonight uh, to Primal Screen on Triple R. It's time for us to get out of here. We chatted to programmer Connor Bateman earlier tonight about the upcoming Festival Metamorphoses, a static vision festival on at Lido from this Thursday. We reviewed Amanda Kramer's film Give Me Pity screening at Metamorphoses this Saturday. And finally, we reviewed David Gordon Green's Halloween Ends, which you can catch for some thematic spooky month viewing. A big thank you to Connor Bateman from Static Vision for joining us and thanks heaps and heaps to Glenn Dunks for coming into the studio for our review segments to chat about all things movies. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 